I'll tell you a story about a, a woman named Joni. At the age of 17, as a young athletic high schooler, uh, Joni was swimming with her sister in the Chesapeake Bay. After swimming to a wooden raft anchored in the lake, uh, they came on top of it, and they're going to jump off it. Uh, Joni jumped off, and she dove in, uh, thinking, oh, it's a, it's a raft, it's plenty deep. It was not very deep, it was actually extremely, extremely shallow. She dove in head first not knowing, and instantly broke her neck. Uh, and turned into a, a paraplegic uh, instantly. Lost all feeling in her legs, um, could only move her arms, couldn't move her hands. At the age of 17, uh, she faced many surgeries. She spent her first, the first half a year laying in a hospital bed under surgery after surgery. Uh, great pain, just hurting all the time. Uh, misery, uh, she was in a wheelchair and even tried to kill herself, but she didn't know how because she couldn't do anything. Um, sorrow and growing grief. Uh, but Joni, her name is Joni Erickson Tata. Uh, she was and still is a believer. And she became with much doubt and depression. During that time, some of her friends gave her some very hefty books. She couldn't really use her hands, but she could read, obviously. And she learned how to paint with holding a pencil in her mouth. And she actually paints extremely well. Uh, they're great paintings. And she, gave, she had a lot of books to read. Uh, she read a book called John Calvin's Institutes, a very textbook, big book. The book that she prized the most, apart from the Bible, is a book by Lorraine Botner, a very big book called The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. And in it, she read that God has purpose and sovereignty, uh, not only in her pain or salvation, but also in her pain. Uh, Joni was convinced that the Bible is clear. And this is, I'm, I'm going to read you her words here in a minute and just be, be listening. She's convinced that her paraplegia is God's divine purpose. She calls it God's grace to her. And 50 years later, so she's still alive, she still believes these things. She writes things. I just want you to hear these. She writes things that, I don't know how you can write these things. I mean, it just makes me feel so small in my Christian faith. Quote, this, she writes about, this, this is what she thought when this happened to her. Whenever I pushed the replay button on my dive, imagining the scene in the heavenlies, I could hear God say, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. That's, she's citing Isaiah 48, 10 through 11. She says this, God was and is still testing me in his furnace of affliction so that his glory can be put on display through my yielded life. Now today, Joni Erickson Todd faces much pain every day. She hurts every day. She's battled stage three cancer. Uh, she has current issues with her kidneys and her lungs because of the accident. And she faces days where she says are unbearable, where it's just, I don't, even feel like, I don't even feel like living, I don't feel like breathing, I don't feel like getting out of bed. And she has to pray every day sometimes that God would just help her to live, frankly. She says this, I began to see that there are more important things in life than walking and having use of your hands. It sounds incredible, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do, then be on my feet and be without him. I mean, can you even talk like that as a Christian? <laughs> she says things like this. We, we can welcome trials as friends. If you don't, maybe it's because you don't realize they come to push you down the road to Calvary. Suffering stretches your soul's capacity for God. I don't want to waste my suffering. I don't want to waste it. So I praise God for the wheelchair. That keeps pushing me in that heavenly direction. Lastly, she says this when she's asked about, are you excited for heaven? 
she is. She says this, I find it so poignant that finally, at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because the Bible says that God will. Friends, the book of Ruth begins with pain and providence. Providence isn't, the word isn't actually in the Bible, just like the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, or the word Bible isn't in the word of Bible, or discipleship, or evangelism, but we know those things are in there because we see them, so... Providence is God's wise and his purposes through his reign of all things. So it's how God accomplishes his will in the world. It's what he does through things. And the way that he accomplishes it is, according to this book, it may be for you through pain. The book of Ruth is all about that. And I hope you will see that today. So we're going to walk through this this narrative. Uh, It's a very good narrative, but there is a lot of bitter province, but there is sweet joy in it. So I hope you'll see this. Look at verses one through five. We've got three sections here we're going to mark off. So first, the the trip to Moab. Look at verses one through two. The days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Epaphrites from Bethlehem and Judah. So there's a famine in the land, the time of Judges, if you just look literally the next, the next door neighbor to your book of Ruth at Judges, the very last verse of Judges 21, it might be on the next page for you, uh, says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did was right in their own, own eyes. So in Israel, it's Mardi Gras 24-7, 365. We do what we want when we want because we can. There's no king. Uh, there's no penalty, so we're going to do whatever we want. There's unrestrained lawlessness, right? The natural condition of the human heart just comes out. In addition to that, there was a famine, right? And if you notice, the famine is in Bethlehem. Does anybody know what the word Bethlehem means? Glad you asked. I will tell you. Uh, it comes from Hebrew word. Uh, bet, bet means house. Lehem means bread. So a house of bread. So having a famine in Bethlehem is kind of like having a famine in Costco. Just it should, This should be happening. Like, what's, This is a house of bread. We have, we have no food here. What, what's happening, right? doesn't make any sense. So there's no king, uh, no food. And no hope. So what does his family do? Well, they flee to Moab. Moab is a town about 40 miles away, we think. We're not really sure about how 30 to 50, kind of depends what route you take. But about 40 miles away. And there's no king in Israel, but the name of her husband, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, his name literally means God is king. So we're going to really see in this story that though there is no earthly king, uh, God really is king even in this narrative. The Moabites are offspring of Lot. Just to keep it as PG as I can, um, they're the offspring of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter in Genesis 19. So the land of Lot, uh, of Moab, sorry, is a rich land, very healthy, but the people of Moab are hostile. They're not friends with Israel. If you you read the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 3, they subdue the Israelites for about 18 years. And then you remember the story of Ehud, the guy who sits a sword so far into the king's belly. Things come out, okay? It's a very interesting story, but... Uh, Moab is a hostile people. They worship foreign gods, according to Judges chapter 10. So this is not a great place to go. They leave the promised land for a foreign land filled with enemies and idols. Well, why would you do that? Well, they want food, right? They just, there's a famine, so we're going to go where the food is, so let's go eat, right? At best, this was unwise. I would probably even argue sinful. Uh, you're just forsaking God and his people and his land, saying, we're just going to go where there's food. 
Um, there's food in Moab and famine in Israel, but their hearts were longing for Moab, right? Look at verses 3 and 3 through 5. So more things have more sorrow happens, right? They move to Moab, and now Elimelech, verse 3, the husband of Naomi dies, and she was left with her two sons. These two take Moabite wives. One name was Orpah, not Oprah, right? I mean, you read it, you almost think, oh, Oprah. It's not that. It's Orpah, okay? And Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and then both Malon and Kilion died. And she was left without her two sons and her husband. So her husband dies. And her sons take Moabite wives. Now, Deuteronomy 7 doesn't say you can't marry a, a Moabite wife. It says you shouldn't marry foreign wives because of their religion, not because of their race, because of their religion. But it doesn't list Moab. But later in the book of Deuteronomy, it does say that Moabites will never enter uh, the temple to the 10th generation. That's 400 years. So if you want to mess with the Moabite, just know you're, you're ruled out from us for about 400 years. So this is spiritual suicide, right? If you know anything about Solomon, marrying someone who's not a believer will just lead you astray. We know that about him as well. In verse 5, there's 10 years. It doesn't say this, but we, we can see this, that there's also apparently no kids as well, right? It doesn't mention anything about children or grandchildren. There's no kids. So death, marrying foreign wives, no grandchildren, death. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3 says there is a time to die, a time to weep, a time to lose for everything. There is a season. We learn from 1 Samuel 2 that the Lord himself is the one who kills and who brings to life. So God is in charge of famines and in charge of life. The Bible is the most honest book in the world, isn't it? It just doesn't hide anything. It just tells you up front, this is what's happening, it's really bad, it's evil, and it's terrible. Not all suffering and pain, I want you to be clear here, not all suffering and pain are to be understood as God's discipline, as God's punishment, Right? But straying from the Lord does often lead to death, pain, frustration, and trouble and sorrow, right? This all started because of a famine, which we and Naomi would know from Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, that God says that he rules the weather, the crops, the herds, the soils, the drought, everything. Psalm 136 is whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven above and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise, who gives lightning for the rain, so... God causes a drought. He just says, no more rain, right? He, he ceases the rain. And notice what happens when God does this. How is, the, how is the response of these people? Well, they, instead of seeking the Lord, they seek for bread. So the famine outside reveals an inner problem, right? It's not, it's not God's fault they're sinning. They're sinning because they're sinning in response, right? It's a famine outside reveals the famine inside their hearts. So God's fam did not cause their sin. Instead, they responded sinfully, right? And then what happened? Well, notice who led the family. This is just a side note. But who, led, who leads the family according to the Bible? Be the husband, be the father. This is a good warning to us husbands and fathers that leading your families has more to do with just bread. My kids have bread and they got clothes. Well, they're not naked. They got food in their bellies. <clears throat> That's really good. But if we don't lead them closer to Christ, we're failing as husbands and fathers. My son is, is my hope is he gets converted. I, I hope he gets a job, has clothes on his back. I hope so. But if I don't lead him to Christ, I can't get him converted. But if, I can, if my job is to shepherd him, if I'm not doing that, I'm failing. <clears throat> as a husband and father, you are the best pastor your kids will ever have. 
what started off as a good intent, right? Like, I, go, I want to get my family food. Then this turned into to months. Months turned into years. And then it's been a decade. They've been gone, right? Drifting from the Lord is a, it's a slow fade. It slowly eclipses God's preeminence in life, doesn't it? In Matthew 26, Jesus says this, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we know that sin is not a level path. It's a slippery slope, right? One preacher said this, Sin will take you further than you ever meant to stray, will keep you longer than you ever planned to stay, and will cost you more than you ever dreamed you'd pay. So to sum it up, Naomi's life so far <clears throat> is empty. She's old. She's barren. She has no husband, no, no son, no sons, only two young daughters-in-law. And both of them are foreign. They're not even, they're not even like her. And they are also both barren. She's sorrowful. She's sad. <clears throat> There's no satisfaction in Moab. We, likewise, should count the earth to be like a Moab. There's nothing here. That's just, it's, just, it's just bread here. The earth is just bread. There's nothing else. It, just, it can't give you anything to please your soul. It just can't, right? So maybe we count the earth like a Moab. Number two, look at the next section. So first they go to Moab, and these things happen. So the, the trip to Moab, now there's the time to return. Look at verses 6 through 14 here. So going through a narrative, we got to realize this is an ongoing story. It keeps going. So look at verse 6. So then she arose, Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab because she heard in the fields of Moab that their Lord had visited his people and given them food. So what does she hear? The shelves are full in Bethlehem. Costco's been stocked. Let's go back. It's time to, it's time to go. Family, let's go back. Let's go eat, right? In verse 7, they go to return. But look at verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, uh, her sons, right? So Naomi says, just go. You, you guys should go back to where it's easy. Don't follow me. Uh, go, to where, go back to your family, back to your homes, back to your country. And then in verse 8 9, she blesses them, right? May the Lord, be, may the Lord deal kindly with you as, as you've dealt with me. May he grant you to find rest and to find a husband, right? And she kissed them and lifted up their voices, and they wept. Notice that Naomi responds with, turn back. Or, I, have, I have no sons to offer you. I don't have anything to offer you. It's just me. Go get, the, go get a husband. Go get a family. Don't wait for me. Just go. And then if you look at verse 9 and verse 14, they, during this encounter, they weep two times, right? There's two, they cry again. And there are two returns that happen in this passage. I want you to see two, two kinds of returns. So if you look at verse 14, they cry, they lift up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. You, you don't say she kissed her goodbye. Like, see, I'm out of here. And she returns, right? And then Naomi seeks the Lord. So suffering, God's design in suffering is kind of like the story of Solomon and that baby. Do you remember that story, that very strange story? It's in 1 Kings chapter 3, and there's a woman who loses her baby. And so another woman goes, well, I lost my baby, so I guess I'll just go kidnap one. So she does. That's a logical thing to do, right? So she takes a baby, and what's the dispute about? Well, who's the mom? Well, we don't know. So they bring to Solomon, and what does Solomon say? We'll figure it out. Someone give me a sword. Okay. He says, how about I cut the baby in half? We each, we each get a half. And the real mom says, no, 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 no. If 
I don't, I don't want him to die. He can live. She can keep her. And the other mom says, sure, good deal. Let's, let's both get a half. So suffering reveals who people are, does it not? The sword reveals who we are. For a non-believer, pain is like a smelling salt to rouse us from the world, right? Every bit of pain in life is meant to be like a little splash over from hell. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. This should awaken you. It's pain. It's real. Wake up. Wake up. Be aware, right? Every brush with the earth's suffering are meant to shake dust off us, to wake us up, to open our eyes. And God is in the habit of alarming us physically to awaken us spiritually. So again, for the unbeliever, God's ordaining of temporal suffering is meant to deliver you from eternal suffering. You think this is bad? This is just a little splash. Wake up, right? Be, be awakened to what's going to happen. It's been said in war that there are, are no unbelievers in foxholes. There's no atheists in a foxhole. You, you guys are in a foxhole, right? You dig a hole, you camp out in it so you can shoot the enemy, you got to hide in it, right? Well, when you're getting shot at, there's no unbelievers in foxholes because they're praying, God, please don't let me get bombed. Please don't let me get shot, right? There's no unbelievers in foxholes. That's kind of the, the saying. However, what's more important is after suffering, after trials, after pain, when they are gone, where do you return? So after all, this, after all this pain left, where did Orpah return? She came from, right? She's like, I'm going back to my gods, back to my people. I'm out of here. It's done now, so I'm just going to retreat back. After the bullets cease, where do these people return? If Jesus is not your portion in the summer days of your soul, be alarmed that he is likely not your portion in the dark night of your soul. So the Bible says to turn, to return to the Lord in faith, to flee from sin. Isaiah 55 says this, Let the wicked forsake his way, that's repentance, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. Probably my favorite verse with return to the Lord is, is Jeremiah 3, verse 22. It is probably the most sweet verse in the Bible on this. It says this, Return, O faithless sons. And you think, I'm faithless. How can I return? I will heal your faithlessness. So for those who are in suffering and they don't return to the Lord because they didn't know him, God says, I will heal your faithlessness. Come, and I will, I will heal it. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. So the Lord welcomes faithless sinners, stumbling sinners, weary sinners. He welcomes hypocrites too. Flee to him in repentance and faith, and he saves to the uttermost, the Bible says. That describes you need to flee from your sin and trust in Christ, not just during times of sorrow, but during times of joy, that you would see that you are a believer. Notice that Naomi returns to the Lord in faith, right? Look at verse 13. What does, what does Naomi say about all this trouble? For your sake, the hand of the Lord has gone out against you. If you look at verses 20 and 21, she says the same thing. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. I want to say this very gently. Um, as Christians, we have been taught very well to use language, God let these things happen, right? God, he permitted, he didn't make, he let it happen. I, want, I think that's good. And we do it because we want to say, God doesn't do evil. 
Yes and amen to the 10,000th power. He can't sin. It's impossible for God to sin. But this verse is very confronting, isn't it? Who is Naomi saying did this? Not let, but did. It's pretty clear to me that she's saying that God did this. This is God's purpose. He actually he did it to me. The Lord blesses the people in Bethlehem and only seemingly wounds Naomi. There's no blessing as far as she is seeing right now. God's purpose of grace in suffering is that he would be our all in all, that he would be our streams in the desert, that we would get honey from the rock. God desires to show forth the vanity of the world to reveal the sufficiency of himself. Thomas Brooks said this, a gracious soul, means a converted person, may look through the darkest cloud and see God smiling upon him. So for Christians, suffering is God's chisel for molding us to be like his son. God desires to imprint upon you the most precious person, namely himself, and he does it through suffering. If you're like me, you desire a pain-free life. <laughs> I don't like cavities. I don't like doctors. I don't like band-aids. I don't like anything. I don't like hospitals. And I don't like any of that. But our Father desires our holy life. Affliction is not meant to bury us. It's meant to bury what we trust in. Death, pain, sick beds, suffering are all God's cords of love that he ties and tightens. And what happens when you squeeze like a bottle of soap? What comes out? Well, hopefully soap. That's what's inside the bottle, right? So when God squeezes with trial and squeezes with pain, what comes out? That's what's in your heart. That's what suffering's meant to do, to squeeze out of you. God's trials are like winds to blow our sails, to blow us closer to Christ. That's the point. Troubles like God's scalpel to cut away the disease of sin. In God's furnace, the dross of unbelief falls away, and a pure faith is made to stay. Isaiah 19.22 says this. So God's speaking of Egypt. He's going to strike Egypt. But listen to what he's going to do, why he's doing it. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. So when God strikes a Christian, it stings. But it's a healing strike, isn't it? It's meant to heal. It stings, but it heals. George Mueller said this, God delights to increase the faith of his children. Trials, obstacles, difficulties, sometimes defeats are the very food of faith. So what is faith? Well, look at Naomi. She's not just saying, just forget it. Let's go back to Moab. I'll be a Moabite. Let's just drop it. No, no, no. The eyes of faith look to the hand that holds the rod. If you're a parent or have ever been, have little, have little children, you know that discipline, spanking, is the most unpleasant thing you have to do. Your hope is that your kids say, my father loves me. That's why he's doing this. So by faith, we look to the hand that holds the rod. We don't just accept the pain, but we ascribe it to God's loving hand. Suffering should not be strange for Christians. Our Lord suffered more than anyone else ever could. Should not the disciples be like, his ma be like their master? Isaiah 33 says, Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And 1 Peter 2 says, yet he entrusted himself to his father. So friends, if, you're, if you are suffering, 
I want to encourage you. You have a high priest who can sympathize with your weaknesses. That he's no stranger to suffering. He stands with you in the furnace. He upholds you in the torrents. And be reminded that it is not your faith that sustains you. Because if you're like me, your faith will wobble. It will fail. It will bend. It may even break. Your faith is not what sustains you, but your Christ is what sustains you. Uh, do you guys like holding little kids' hands across the street? It's awful. They squirm so much. If it was up to my children to be safe by holding my hand, they would be goners. It's my hand holding their little tiny hand that's why they're going to make it across. That's how faith works. It's not our little faith. It's Christ's strong arm. How strong is his arm? Don't you want a faith like that? You can look at pain and say, this is my father. He's doing, I love him. This is my father doing this. What grows this type of rock-solid confidence? What type of faith? Naomi has rock-solid faith. Address the men. I want, I want to address ladies here very briefly. Do you want to be like Naomi here? I wish I could, I want to trust like, like that's all. I wish I could trust like her. I want to be like that. What do I drink from to do this? Is there like a, a potion? Can I, how can I be like that? <clears throat> Let me discourage you from doing something, then encourage you to do something different. Uh, I worked at Lifeway for a long time, a long time ago, when Kelly first got married, even before that. I know what Christian books sell at Lifeway. I know what women's Christian books sell at Lifeway. Let me just give you a brief survey. Uh, they have a very pretty cover, and in them, it'll say things very simple like this. Um, God is good, and he's great, and he's loving, and he made you, and God doesn't make mistakes, therefore you're great, and you're beautiful and loving. Do you think that would help Naomi when her husband died? When her sons dies, do you think she'd say, well, at least you're pretty, mom? No. Not all books are that way. But I want to discourage you from reading, honestly, most Christian women's books. Not all. They're not all that way. But I want to serve you well. I want to give you something that gives you a rock to stand on. Looking inward is not going to help. We need something bigger than ourselves. Faith to drive you outward and upward. Right? You, you need a big God. Like Joni Erickson taught, I can look at her wheelchair and say, thank God for my wheelchair. I wish I could talk like that. How do we get that? Well, 1 Peter 3 says that the holy women of God trusted, they trusted the Lord. The Proverbs 31 woman, the one that we all love, we're not married to. Proverbs 31 says this in verse 25, that she laughs at the time to come. She looks at pain and she, trials are coming. It's okay. She laughs because she has a big God in her heart. She knows the throne of the Lord. So let me encourage you with some helpful things apart from diving into this book and melting into your brain, sleeping on it, drinking. I want to give you a couple of resources, a couple of books I'd recommend, some authors I recommend who I think are very encouraging who are female authors who are rich in this area. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata is one, of, as I mentioned in the beginning. Uh, Nancy Wilson is a pastor's wife, a grandmother. Uh, she has a book called The Fruit of Her Hands, and everything else she writes is just dynamite. She has a, if you like podcasts, she has a podcast called Femina, F-E-M-I-N-A. Um, Elizabeth Elliot, husband of Jim Elliot, who was martyred as a Christian. She died, I believe, about a decade ago. Uh, she has a book called Let Me Be a Woman and Other Books. Uh, she is 
ferociously encouraging. Um, Abigail Dodds, she has a book called A Typical Woman, if you want it. I have two copies in that room. Please copy me after. Um, she's also very helpful. Joan Erickson Tata, as I mentioned, everything she writes is pretty solid. And there's a book by a man named Ray Rhodes Jr. about the life and legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon's wife. The book is called Susie. So if you're a husband and you heard one of those books, there is a good Christmas gift to just drop any stocking. Just turn it out there. But let me encourage you to drink deeply from rich books, rich theology. Number three, the town of Bethlehem. So we have the trip to Moab, the time to return, and then now they're at the town of Bethlehem. Look at verses 14 all the way through 20. This is the end of the narrative here. So Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. See ya. Kissed her goodbye, right? And Ruth clung to her, right? Tears and grief formed not rejection for Ruth, but a relationship, right? She actually grew closer, right? She's like, I, I don't want to go. I want to stay with you. I want to be one with you, right? And consider the heritage of Ruth. It would almost appear, it looks like to me, that there's a conversion. Look at verses 15 through 18. What did the text we read this morning, what does she say? Don't urge me to leave or return. For, wherever, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death puts me from you. So, sounds like conversion, right? Like she, I don't want to go back to Moab. I don't believe those gods. I, I, I want your God to be my God. I want to be like you. I want to be with you. So, Ruth, it looks like it's converted, right? Orpah returns to her people and her gods. We read in that section. Why didn't Ruth do the same? Well, it appears to be that Ruth met the Lord through Naomi through her husband, we don't know, but somehow she met the Lord through these people through this time. Isn't this interesting? This is the mystery of God's providence. Why did they go to Moab? Well, they, want, they want to fill their stomachs. They want her hungry, right? And that was foolish. And in that, God said, oh, good, because I'm meaning to save Ruth. So while you're going, I'm going to convert Ruth and then come back. So God's providence was, I'm actually going to save someone while, while you're doing something really silly. I'm going to do what I want and then come back. Isn't it just, can you trace God's hand? I mean, just be stunned. He just, how unscrutable are his ways, right? This is a great picture of conversion. This is what conversion is. Look at verse 16, 17. It's a, it's a change in direction, a change in destiny, and a change in desire. Verse direction, notice that Ruth has an old manner of life. Now she has a new manner of life, right? Where Naomi goes, Ruth goes. I'm not going back where I came from. I'm going a new direction, right? So conversion first is marked by a new direction. The command of the gospel in Mark 1, 15, Jesus said, is repent and believe the gospel. The first act of conversion is to repent, to have a new direction, right? True confession is marked by, or true conversion is marked by turning from an old life to a new life, right? The Bible says that we are new creatures. We have a, a change in us. We're under new management, right? The old has gone and the new has come. That's evidence of conversion. Their life is not their own. Their feet are not their own. Their tongues, their thoughts, their desires, they're not my own. I'm going to follow Ruth. We'll just, I'm following Naomi. Just like Christians, we follow Christ. And notice that Ruth glued herself to Naomi. It's kind of, I mean, it's like she's like, she's like her skin now. Wherever you go, I'm going to be right there. Like her, she's her shadow, right? She's glued to Naomi, just like we are glued to Christ. His life is our life. What he is, we are. In Christ, we are righteous because Christ is righteous. By faith, we are glued and melted to him, right? Conversion is turning from sins and turning to Christ in faith. So change in direction, now change in destiny. Look at 
the same section. Verse 17, Ruth speaks to her destiny. I'm bound to you. Where you lodge, I'm going to lodge. Where you die, I'm going to die there too. So the entire Christian life is devoted unto God. Romans 6 verse 4 says this, that we were buried with him, with Christ, by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. So the gospel is this, that Jesus bore our condemnation, our death, so that his death is my death, so that his resurrection will be whose resurrection? Be mine, right? Romans 8, 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, why? Because he already took your condemnation, and by faith you're united to him, so you get his work credit to you, right? That's, that's the gospel. So we believe as Christians how you're converted. Lastly, desire. Ruth's affections and desires are transformed. She's no longer looking for bread or even the, the gods of the Moabites. She looks for Yahweh. So conversion, we, we must recognize, is not like a flu shot. It's not fire insurance. You just get it. I'm good to go. It's not what it is. Christians have a change in taste buds. Ruth now desires Yahweh. She desires the Lord. When God causes our new birth, God is now our treasure. He's, he's what I want. I want him. I don't want that. I want him, right? Psalm 73 says this, Whom have in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. And by faith, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ clings to us. We don't just cling to him. He clings to us. In John 20, when Jesus is raised from the dead, I almost think he's citing this verse when Mary uh, hugs him and Jesus says, don't cling to me. I'm going to your father, my father and your father, my God and your God. It almost sounds like he's citing this. Probably not, but it certainly sounds like it, doesn't it? Our sins, his. His God, ours. Our punishment, his. His reward, ours. That's conversion. So the question is, does this describe your conversion? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ in faith? Charles Spurgeon says it just like he always does. He said, if this does not describe you, both at home and abroad, our repentance needs repented of, and our conversion is a fiction. So I must ask you, are you presently, not I was, not 10 years ago, not yesterday, are you presently trusting and treasuring Christ? Is he your all in all? That's the evidence we look for in conversion. And this type of commitment to Naomi and her God is crazy. Look, look at Naomi. She's just speechless. Okay, I guess I'll, that, yeah, that'll work. I'm not going to talk anymore, right? It just stuns her, right? They go to Bethlehem, verse 19 through 22, the house of bread. So again, there's food there. Restaurants are open. Time to go eat, right? The whole town, verse 19, sees them and they respond. Naomi responds in sorrow, right? Don't, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mar, which means bitter. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The Lord has brought me back empty. He brought calamity upon me. So Naomi's sorrow has pricked her heart. Now she rightly sees God's hand in suffering. But again, it's not wrong to attribute it to the Lord, but we must respond in faith, in love that he is doing this well. Psalm 119 verse 71 says this. It was, now this verse is also stunning. Listen to this verse. Psalm 119 verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Perhaps Naomi knew that. Like Job, she can say, God has given, God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though God takes away from us, he sends her, he sends her a Ruth. Like, I'm going to take away. It's going to sting. But I'm going to send you a Ruth. Right? 
when God stings, he draws that we would feel the warmth of his heartbeat for us. Lamentations 3 says this, The Lord will not cast off forever, for though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion again. Let's look at verse 22. This is, this is the setup for the whole rest of the book that they come just at the time for harvest. The point was to leave and to come for this instant, for this minute, for harvest time, which is when Ruth will meet Boaz, who will be in the bloodline of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So this is God sending, right? Joseph says, well, my brother betrayed me and they sold me to slavery, but he says, God sent me. You didn't do it. God sent me. This is how God sent them was through pain, through, through misery, right? And praise God that he's in the habit of redeeming the very pain that he sends. Someone once said this, that God ordains what he hates, sin, pain, to accomplish what he loves. He minimizes our comfort to magnify his grace. And Naomi looks to the Lord's hand and says, this is good. He's, he's good in this. He's, it stings, but he's good. So this is all true, that God sends our affliction, that he measures out our griefs and care and love. He measures them out as he measured the universe. How should we respond as children of God? I want to give you three very, very brief ways to, to respond. How you should think about pain as a Christian. Number one, you should respond in faith and trust. Jerry Bridges says that we tend to make our first priority. I want to gain relief from my pain instead of we're not focusing on glorifying God first. God's glory should be our first priority because it's his first priority. It should be ours. So I wonder if the Lord is undoing parts of your life even today. I think it's possible that some of us have bitterness towards God from decades ago. You need to respond in repentance and faith. Perhaps the Lord's hand has caused you grief. You can trust him. Do you remember the three Hebrew children and Daniel? They didn't want to, they didn't want to bow down to the gods, right? To the foreign statues. And what was the threat? You're going to get thrown into a what? Furnace. Fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar, right? It's coming death. I mean, can you imagine the anxiety? That thing is really hot. I don't want to get thrown in there. I want to die, Right? How they respond, they say this in Daniel chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He can save me. He, he can take me out of that flame. He can. He can. But if not, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image. So faith looks through fear to your father. God's desire is to grow that which angels do not have, namely your faith. Do you see mercy in God's pain? You, you should. It's good news that God values your holiness better than you do, or we would never grow as Christians. Uh, John Calvin, who's a contemporary to Martin Luther in the Reformation, and his wife, Idolette, they bore a, a son, and he, he died very young. And Calvin was grieving, and he wrote this to a pastor friend of his who asked him how he's doing. He said this, the Lord has certainly inflicted a severe, bitter wound in the death of our baby son. But he himself is a father and knows best what is good for his children. Though he cause grief, he will again have compassion. Next, we shall long for heaven. 
George Whitfield said that God seemed to always put a thorn in his nest because always kept him out from sitting down at home. He's oh, stings, right? Couldn't sit down in his nest. He always got thorn in it all the time. Could it be then that suffering is meant to remind you of heaven, to redirect your gaze upward? Um, I don't know if you guys walked home from school as kids. If you did, it was probably uphill both ways, snowing all the time. Right? Is that accurate? Is that always is? Yeah, that's accurate. That's always for me too. Uh, I just walked home from school in California. It was sunny every day, never cold, so it was pretty easy, uh, to be honest. And uh, I, I'd always take my time, just kind of, it's pretty, what am I going to hurry for? But if I were to ever see dogs behind me, I would run very fast. I would not loiter on my way home. I would speed up, so to speak, right? They're chasing me. I'm, I, I want to go home. I'm out of here, right? The Lord seems to send his hounds of suffering to hurry us home, doesn't he? To quicken your pace. If heaven is our great reward, what a blessing to be reminded of the sweetness of it. So the question is, do you long for heaven? If you could have heaven now or have everything you ever wanted now, which would you choose? God brings our earthly joys to ruin like sandcastles that we would long for him, for a better country, a better home, and a better reality. Number three, and lastly, very briefly, remember the gospel. Where is the place where the most suffering, the most pain, the most sin is also the point of the most love and mercy and mercy and mercy and mercy and grace? Where is that at? It's the cross, isn't it? In suffering, we tend to wonder, what is God doing? Or what's he not doing? Instead, we should remember what God has already done. John Stott said this, the real sting of suffering is the apparent God forsakenness of it. We think of him as an armchair spectator, enjoying his own insulation of our pain. It is this terrible character of God that the cross smashes to smithereens. I love that word. God did not spare his son that we would receive the fullness of his love. The love and sovereignty of God and the holiness of God and the goodness of God are seen at the cross. How then should we, can, should we count our small, though real, crosses in life. They're meant to give us a ballast of assurance, like in a boat, so we wouldn't topple over. And the reality of the glory, that we get all Christ, we get heaven, we get everything he earned for us. Christ is with you in suffering. He's with you by sending suffering. He's with you to the end of suffering. He sustains you in suffering. He will complete his purpose. I want to read you a closing hymn. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let's pray.